joy. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Slashers, a horror movie podcast hosted by two dudes who can't even get their wives to listen to them ramble and somehow think that you will be downloading this episode. My name is Jake, and I am, as always, joined by my co-host, colleague, cohort, Brian. Brian, say hello to the pretty people. Hey, how's it going, guys? Uh, Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. There we go. See, that's the tagline. Every (laughs) single episode, Brian's going to say, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. And it's going to be freaking awesome. And all of our Jewish listeners are going to be super pissed about it. They're going to start a petition. We're going to be on Fox News. That's how we're going to make money, son. But as of now, we make no money. And we are brought to you by no one except ourselves. How about this? Uh, Happy holidays, guys. Sorry about that. No, no, no. It's good. (laughs) Uh, So, Brian, I have uh, an amusing anecdote. I described our show after the... You know, pilot episode as it's like the movie uh, with David Arquette ready to rumble if it was directed by John Carpenter. Yeah, I can definitely see that in a weird, strange twist of things. Absolutely. If we're, who would play you and who would play me, though? Dude, that's the thing. <laughs> I feel like you're clearly Gordy because you're way more polite than I am, and I'm the crazy Sean who's walking around bare-assed, right? Yeah, no, that actually makes a lot of sense. So, And you wrestled in high school. I did not wrestle in high school, so that makes you the wrestler by default. Singlet and everything, man. But (laughs) spoiler alert, uh, you find out that I'm the thing 20 minutes into the movie. Subplot. (laughs) Okay, so anyway, this is our first episode, official episode. Uh, I did reference we did a pilot episode, and I think we got a lot of great feedback, and I'm really excited to implement that stuff. Uh, this episode is going to be slightly longer than average because it's our Diamond Dogs debut. So we're going to be doing uh, Pet Cemetery, a little bit of commentary on Pet Cemetery 2, and then I'm going to pitch Brian some ideas uh, from the book to Pet Cemetery to see if when they do the remake they should incorporate these to make it better or avoid these uh, at all costs to try and, you know, for lack of a better term, avoid a hideous car wreck, but because that plays into the story. Sorry. Right, right. I mean, and just throwing this out there, um, I mean, just the fact that uh, Judd, a.k.a. Herman Munster, is getting um, replaced by, uh, what's his name, John Lithgow? Yep. I believe his name, the 30, 30, third rock from the song? Third rock, not 30 rock. I've made that third. mistake myself. <laughs> or uh, Trinity Killer, which uh, was what I liked him in in, uh, in Dexter. But anyways, back to the point. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, pretty excited about it. So uh, here, let's get to it. All right. So uh, just some background information for you, Brian. Uh, the movie came out in 1989, uh, April 21st. Uh, it has a runtime of 143 minutes. It's actually pretty breezy when you watch it. Um, it had a shooting budget of $11.5 million. Opening weekend alone, they made that money back with a $12 million opening. Now... I think that is amazing. Ryan, ask me why you think that's amazing. Um, I don't know. Why was that amazing, Jake? Because of the competition on opening weekend. Brian, ask me who its competition was. I'm dying to know who is competition. Field of Dreams. O-M-G. Kevin Costner in his prime, not doing a Robin Hood British accent that's not a British accent. This is peak Costner. Wow, that's that's kind of crazy. What was op- I'm kind of curious to see what opening weekend was for uh, Field of Dreams. Uh, it was a lot. It was a lot higher. 
Uh, being uh, perfectly frank. Um, interesting fact. Uh, did you know that Major League came out two weeks before? So a lot of baseball. Yeah, that's kind of crazy. Major League was uh, definitely one of my favorites. Yeah, and uh, fun fact, the Jean-Claude Van Damme film Cyborg also came out that month. So they were rocking shit in 89, I gotta say. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, it was a good year. I mean, I mean, I think what you said, uh, Pet Cemetery came out uh, April 21st. That was, uh, I believe... Two years. I was two years old when that came out. I was two years and seven days or eight days old when that came out. Yeah, so that's pretty cool. Which that makes you the exact age of, or yeah, almost the exact age of Gage in Pet Cemetery. So that's going to be fun having that yeah, mental man. image when we're relaying the synopsis of the film. <laughs> my best friend being hit by a car. Spoiler alert. Um, but yeah, the film. Brian, why did we pick Pet Cemetery for our debut episode? So Pet Cemetery is um, one of those uh, marquee Stephen King films um, that I feel like a lot of people can kind of um, understand where he's coming from as far as the type of fear that um, comes from the movie itself, right? So with uh, Pet Cemetery, basically it's it's like the fear of loss is what I gather from the film, right? So everybody um, loses uh, a loved one um eventually um you know it's it's kind of dark and and sad to say um and same thing with when it comes to pets and um it's one of those things that you know with both your yourself having darla and uh god i have uh farm animals basically uh horses cats dogs um it's one of those things where you become so emotionally attached to an animal and they just become part of the family and um you know unfortunately they don't tend to live as long as you'd like them to, and um, that's one of the fears that uh, that deal you know you, people deal with in the movie. And uh, it's kind of uh, yeah, it's kind of what's what's going on in the film. So, uh, what do you think, Jake? Yeah, you know, as a young father, I think a lot of the themes really hit me in, in a in not well. Here's the thing: it, it didn't hit me in an exploitative way. It hit me in oh, this story is interesting to me. You know, I think you've heard me rant quite a bit about horror movies as, a, a, you know, the trope of the child. You know, even the new Halloween remake where he, like, walks by the baby and you're like, oh, fuck, is he going to kill that baby? And it's like, that that's just, <laughs> it's schlock. And it's not the fun schlock. It's just like, oh, you're exploiting something that's human nature. We as people, you know, whether it's, you know, culturally or physiologically have this fear of protecting the young. But that's not really what this movie does. I don't think that it's exploitative. That's the story, is a guy who is desperately seeking a way to, you know, avoid this grief and loss. Because that's what the book and the movie really deal with. It never seems as though... I mean, they know that when they bring these characters back to life, that it's not the same. They know it's like a crappy photocopy. It's not the original, but it's better than nothing. And in the book... They deal with the theme quite heavily of like Lewis and Ellie losing their love for the cat, Church, um, and using that as a means of avoiding the pain of this animal dying. And you see that throughout the book with other characters uh, going on. So, Brian, uh, give us a brief synopsis, if you don't mind, what the overarching yeah. uh, you know, s- story points are. Yeah, absolutely. So basically what it is is um, Lewis and Rachel um, Creed and their two um, 
children, uh, Gage and Ellie, uh, are moving to, I believe it's Maine, and um, they're moving from Chicago. And the reason they're moving to Maine is because Lewis has uh, accepted a job at the University of Maine as, I believe, the resident doctor, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, yeah. And uh, so, you know, it's a, it's a big job for him. And um, so, you know, they move into a new place. It's I'm assuming they're coming from, like, you know, Chicago proper. And from what it looks like, they, they move into kind of like a uh, like a country home. So it's a little bit of a change. Um, so um, with that being said, the, where they move is very close to this highway where these truckers are going, like, an absurd amount of, like, speed. Like, I don't know, it seems like these trucks are, are flying down the road at, like, uh, you know, like, rocket fuel. Anyways, um, so um, they become friends with their neighbor, who is uh, Herman Munster, and uh, he lets Lewis in on a little uh, tidbit of information about Pet Cemetery that um, is connected to their property. And uh, he says that a lot of the neighborhood animals have gotten hit and um, or gotten hit by uh, by the truckers, and uh, so all the neighborhood kids have made a pet cemetery for all of the animals um, that got struck. Um, so uh, lo and behold, um, there is a burial ground past the pet cemetery. That's a uh, Indian burial ground. Uh, I forget the Indian name. The Micmac. The, the name is it the Micmac? Is that what it was? Yeah, exactly. The, and I'm saying Indian, so it's like super PC, right? So the Native Americans, uh, Micmac, I'm not even sure if that's an actual tribe, is it? Um, anyways. I did um, not look. Yeah, so, um, you know, they find out that there is an Indian burial ground um, past the pet cemetery. And uh, I don't know if I'm kind of drawing on as far as uh, going too much into the plot or... or anyways. No, it's perfect. Um, so, you know... Okay. The broader story points, uh, sure, they, the family has a cat, Winston Churchill, who they call Church. Church, you know, is unfortunately uh, killed. Uh, you have Judd, who teaches Lewis how to bring him back. Keep going. You're on right. a roll, my friend. <laughs> yeah, so um, Judd basically kind of um, lets uh, Lewis in on a little secret about the, you know, the Indian burial ground. And... Um, so Lewis um, ultimately has his family go out of town, and he kind of does this little ritual thing where he buries the cat. And um, I feel like there should be a little bit more into that, but I guess just burying the cat is all it needs. But uh, yeah, so he buries the cat, uh, Churchill, Church for short. Um, I think the next day, uh, Church shows up smelling god-awful. And um, other than that, everything's pretty kosher. Um, Until... Right, until um, poor little Gage, uh, you know, um, hanging out with the worst parents possibly of all time, um, lets the kite go um, and uh, decides to follow the kite, uh, coincidentally, onto the highway um, where uh, our little trucker pal who's listening to, uh, what was the song? He's listening to Sheila is a Punk Rocker. Sheila is a punk rocker. That's right. Yeah. So we got this like super hick looking dude who uh, apparently is listening to uh, Sheila's punk rocker, 
and uh, it doesn't make any sense. But anyways, it was good choice of music, and um, he just destroys Gage. I mean, I kind of wish they would have shown a lot, a little more gore, and that's kind of morbid, right? Because it's a little two-year-old kid. But anyways. Well, I think that's a good point because the horror that you see, the only way that you're really seeing it is through the prism of Lewis Creed, right? You're like, you feel the pain and you see the horror because you're relating to the father. It's not objectively scary or depressing or enraging. It's through that, you know, this is what's happening to his dad. I do agree. A little bit more of, not even if it's not gore, but just something to show like the aftermath for instance, in the book, you and I talked about this earlier, uh, the truck goes like a hundred yards. And as Lewis is chasing the truck, there's, you know, here's a piece of clothing. Here's his baseball cap. Here's his jumper. It's, they're covered in blood and it's this carnage that goes the whole way. So while right. Stephen King doesn't go into grotesque detail about flesh tearing from bone, you get a very vivid image of like, this is catastrophic. Whereas in the movie, you have the slow motion yell to the heavens, ah, which is fun, but I do agree <laughs> with you. Right, right. So, um, you know, so Gage, um, you know, obviously um, didn't make it. Um, so he doesn't have... pull through. <laughs> so they, uh, you know, they have the, the funeral. And um, I believe that's when we get our first little uh, um, Stephen King uh, cameo. Yep. Uh <laughs> Which is cool. He's got his sweet little slick back hair. Anyways, um, at at um, at the funeral, or I guess after the fact, um, Rachel's father, uh, you know, being the loving um, grandpa that he is, decides to uh, take a smack at uh, Lewis, saying that it's his, it's all his fault that Gage died. Which um, I mean. I feel like I'm kind of inclined to agree with. But anyways, that's neither here nor there. Um, And uh, followed up with Judd, who basically... um, It's funny. I feel like Judd kind of leads Lewis into wanting to resurrect Gage. He's like, well, let me tell you a little story about something. And he tells him the story about how a neighbor um, or somebody... Yeah, within ten, you know, in town, uh, had his son um, who got killed in in World War Two, and he buried his body in the Indian writ- burial ground, and uh, hoping you know he'd have some part of his son back. And his son ended up being like the Walking Dead, essentially. With you know, like I don't know, I guess it's like a evil kind of thoughts and evil. Like it's not the same, right? It, yeah. It's it's almost like you're you know things now that you didn't know before and you're just you're not the same anyways so he he tells him this story and he basically warns him like okay you sh- you shouldn't do this for gage because it's not going to turn out right and what is what does lewis do he goes to the <laughs> he goes to the burial grounds and he buries gage hoping that he can get his son back and uh all hell breaks loose from there there you go and that's a synopsis. Let's start going in point for point. Um, there's so many fun notes in this movie. Like Each beat has its own. But this is something that you and I had talked about. One of the things that makes Stephen King such a fun writer is he has so many weird choices that he makes where you could just analyze it for days. Um, you know, Why, upon moving to this house, does Ellie Creed go to the rope swing and fall down? Like... Is it just an omen? Is it trying to show the capricious youth? Is it trying to give her a sense of, you know, cost and consequence? So many weird things that happen. 
Um, yeah, that's that is that is really weird, actually. Um, and that's that kind of make, makes point as far as um, it just seems like uh, I don't know what it is or what it's specifically called where like ghosts can talk to you, right? Where I feel like it's like a constant thing with Ellie, and I don't know if it's one of those things where like the swing kind of is like the same thing where like it's like a foreboding right yeah it's very true and it's in so i'm not gonna try and be that guy who's always like well actually the book but in the movie uh it's just ellie falling off the swing and getting hurt in the book she falls off the swing she gets hurt and gage gets stung in the neck by a bee and it's one of these really interesting things where that made a lot more sense to me. And I realized it's probably more costly to try and film with the kid and do the bee sting and blah, blah, blah. But it's like, look at this little thing that happens to Ellie and the big consequence that Gage had. We're not consequence, but the big worst thing that happens to Gage. So the little thing being, well, Ellie's cat dies. The big thing being, Gage dies. It's just a pretty big change. Yeah, um, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah, I didn't even think about that. So... Um, as we're going through, one of the things that uh, happens, which is, I think is also a very interesting choice. So the whole reason that they move from Chicago proper to Maine, of all places, is because Lewis is going to take the job as the university, uh, you know, uh, health, safety, whatever, doc. Um, at his first day on the job, there's some kid who's out jogging and gets his skull split on open. Comes Victor, in. Uh, Victor Pascal? Yep. And as no. he's dying on the table, he looks up, knows Lewis's name, and says, you know, this very cryptic message before dying. And then he ends up being almost the American werewolf in London type character throughout the rest of the movie, showing up every so often, who giving some kind of advice, or acting as though he's changing the world and having a slight influence on it. Um, it the reason- yeah, you know it. I'm sorry. You know what? You know what that reminded me of was um, the uh, is it Christmas Carol or is it what's the one with Ebenezer Scrooge where oh, yeah. he has like the ghosts? Like, yeah, <laughs> he's the ghost of Labor Day past, <laughs> or what have you. But he's yeah. actually my favorite part of the entire movie. You want to know why? Go ahead. So there's a scene where Rachel is on a flight coming back because you know Ellie's having these premonitions. And Visker Pascal is sitting in coach. And I've never seen someone so happy to be sitting in coach. And that's a life goal of mine, to be able to be that present in the moment and happy. Because it made me realize what an old curmudgeon I already am. Oh, yeah. That's that's pretty good. Especially when she's uh, at the rental car place. And uh, they're like, yeah, we don't have anything. And then he like does his Jedi mind tricks on her. <laughs> it's great. That, the whole thing, I feel like, I don't know if it's intentionally funny, but it's really funny to me. Also, another scene that goes right along there is Rachel running for the plane. Um, I wrote notes about it because I thought it was so silly, where she's effectively like, hold that plane! And the lady's like, I can't! And then as Rachel's running, she goes, okay, I'll call the pilot. <laughs> it's like, bitch, you just said you couldn't do anything. And just because this white woman's running at you, you're going to be like, oh, let me get on the phone right now. Yeah, TSA's be tackling that bitch. <laughs> Seriously, not happening. But I really would have loved to see her run through the little, I don't know, it's, that's not a tarmac. What's the tunnel that you go through and then falling out like Lloyd Christmas and breaking her ass? <laughs> These yeah, are the things. Think, yeah, yeah. Oh. So uh, going back, when you see the Pet cemetery, the set for it, when they do their initial walkthrough, uh, is this something that you like enjoyed did you think that it was good set design did you think that it set forth you know was it effective let's put it that way 
yeah, you know what? I I did enjoy the way they had it laid out as far as like the nice path going from their their home down into the woods. I feel like the only thing that I wish they would have kind of uh, done a little better was like the undergrowth or like the I don't know what it's called, like the the fallen trees that that Lewis and Judd have to like traverse over to get to the, the Indian burial ground. Right. Okay. So it's a deadfall, right? Um, I don't know. It just seems like it's just. I don't know. They didn't put much effort into it. It's literally just like a bunch of dead branches and, you know, brush. So, I don't know. Other than that, I feel like everything else is uh is done really well. Yeah, I thought it was really effective. Um, you know, it's in the book it becomes very important the spiraling kind of pattern that the gravestones and markers have. Uh it it, it has this naive sense of innocence, right? And then there's this like looming deadfall in the back, which I think that you're right. I don't even I don't know if it's necessarily the set design that's the problem there or the way they shot it, because they had these like long static shots from far away, um, which didn't make it look as intimidating as it is. Because both in the movie, in the book, they are very afraid of that deadfall and falling down and getting hurt and dying. Um, you know that's one of the reasons why when Judd is leading Lewis, he says like, "Don't look down. Like, you will fall. Don't don't do it." Because, like, literally, bro, you could die. Versus in this, it's like you could get a splinter. Right, right. And that's one of those things where it's funny, right? So he was he was saying, uh, you know, don't look down. You're, you could fall. And then, sure, shit, Lewis falls. But it's, like, it's one of those things where, like, he just does, like, a little tumble. And he's like, oh, I'm all right. <laughs> Dude, let me ask you this. Uh, when it comes to uh, Lewis Creed or uh, David Dadselhoff, as we've come to call him, uh, did you ever think that he sounded like Johnny Utah from Point Break? Um, it's definitely a, a resemblance. I don't know. I feel like it's just the, uh, the lack of emotion and that's that. I don't know. I'm not trying to like, you know, talk smack on Keanu Reeves cause it is Keanu Reeves. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's definitely one of those things where it's like, I am Johnny Utah or I am an FBI agent. And it's like, Oh, I mean, I got it. You're an FBI agent, but put a little, a little more emphasis on it. Yeah, and he's such a like disaffected character throughout the movie that like I guess it's kind of to make the big you know emotional points better like the the death of Gage and the way he deals with Rachel, but he was I mean, the hardest part for me to get around was like you have great supporting characters like Herman Munster and you're just like and this is what you get, um, and one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about later just because you'd mentioned it uh, with John Lithgow taking the role of Judd Crandall in the remake. I really wish they would have just cast uh, Michael C. Hall as Lewis Creed. Uh, the guy who they got, he's fine, but I, I just really love that image because he does the disaffected, there's so much fucked up stuff going on behind my eyes better than any modern actor, I think. Do you agree? The guy from Dexter? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's one of those things that uh, definitely, uh, when I close my eyes, I can see him portraying it perfectly. Yeah. Um, it's, it's one of those things that... Uh, yeah, it, it's it was weird, like Datzelhoff um, having his conversations with Ellie about death, and it's one of those things where like she'll like say something to him, and he'll be, and he just kind of like nonchalantly like shrugs things off, like I don't know, it just, it just seemed kind of strange. Yeah. Um, so the first time that they actually cross the deadfall is for uh, Ellie's cat Church, who has been literally fixed to try and prevent the idea of it being hit by a truck because the idea is that the castrated cat won't wander which is kind of an interesting concept when you think about like what that implies 
but despite having its butt balls cut off, it still gets hit by a truck and dies, which is unfortunate. Uh, so, uh, you know, Judd takes him on over the deadfall. They end up bringing him back to life. Uh, did you feel as that scene was playing out? What like did it hit you emotionally? Was it just kind of you took it as a plot point, knowing that something bigger was going to come later? Like as a narrative, do you think that was effective? Uh, yeah, you know what? I think it. I think it was. I think it's definitely one of those things that. Um, I mean, it leads you right. It's like a foreshadowing thing. It, it leads you to believe you they're going to be using this for something else um, in the future. Right. And it's one of those things that, um, yeah, of course, as far as, um, anybody like, you know, I was saying earlier, anybody who loses an animal, um, that's a pet, right. I mean, who wouldn't want to be able to resurrect a dead pet? I mean, I would do that with any one of my older, you know, old pets that I uh, once had. So yeah, I mean, it's definitely one of those things that, uh, that, Got me right in the feels. Now, do you think it's fucked up that uh, Judd Crandall doesn't tell him, hey, we're going to bring your daughter's dead cat back to life? Because he's just um, like, hey, let's just bury the cat. And so it's not until Lewis sees the cat the next day, and he's like, what? Um, <laughs> which, I don't know, I feel like I'd like to have some say if I'm going to be resurrecting animals, but, you know, to each their own. Right, right. It's definitely one of those things where, you know, I think Judd says something about... Uh, he had his dog's uh, spot who wasn't quite the same, right? And it's like, yeah, definitely lead up with that. And then maybe we'll deal with, uh, you know, zombie um, church. Exactly. And I feel like the the actor didn't do as great a job at being like, oh, I'm mystified. What's happening here? He was just like, this is an annoying chore. Why are we walking farther when we could have buried the cat back there? Um, which, again, right. that kind of impatience, you're coming from the big city to rural Maine, whatever, I guess it kind of works, but I just, you're going to hear me harp on that guy forever, because I just don't think that he was effective in this movie, <laughs> which is fine. I mean, he, in the book, I don't like him either. He's not a very, you know, charming character. He's very inconsistent. Like, they're, in the opening scene, just in the act of driving to the new house, he has a daydream about dropping off the family and abandoning them to go live under an assumed name in Florida, working as a medic at Disney World. And then in the same freaking car ride, both Ellie and Gage start crying and throwing a temper tantrum, and he thinks to himself how much he loves them and how you know he it would be totally fine never seeing Disneyland ever again. It's just yeah, like, yeah. you're the same, bro? And, you know, when Ellie falls on her ass with a rope swing, you know, she eats it hard. And then because she doesn't want to have back teen, he thinks, oh, you're, he's like, I'm going to slap your ass and that's going to sting. <laughs> and it's like, so even in the book, he's not a very charming character. In the movie, eh. And so it's one of the things uh, that we talked about when we're going through the Stephen King, you know, movies and books that we plan to. Uh, whenever I do the supplemental material, my goal is to do the movie first and then the book later so that I'm not disappointed by the book. And if anything, the book made me feel like the actor did a better job, but not much better because he was inconsistent and not engaging. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So um, you had mentioned the weird, uh, the, the Rachel's sister, uh, which is Zelda. Sister, sister, brother. Yeah, right? So that's a call from the director who's like, no, there's no way that a little girl can be this scary, so let's just paint a man to look like a little girl. And it's like, 
this is just weird. Her lips look like Goro from Mortal Kombat, if I can be honest <laughs> with you. She doesn't sound like a little girl. In the book, she's supposed to be like two years older, I think, than uh, Rachel. And in the movie, it's like, oh, that's just a man who lives in your house. <laughs> like, <laughs> Right, right. And you know what's funny? It's, I feel like it's one of those things where we're, it may sound like we're harping on the movie, right? Because we're like, kind of like nitpicking this, thing, this and that. But it's, it's a great movie. And it's one of those things that, um, you know, as a whole... It definitely is one of the scarier movies, especially when it came out in 1989. Um, but yeah, as far as with us kind of going back and, and nitpicking here and there, these are just things that I feel like they could have maybe done a little better. Not necessarily saying that the movie is shit. Oh, right? absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And that's the thing I think that makes the movie effective is it's conceptually terrifying. It is not necessarily terrifying in its delivery. So, it, it, you know, like we were talking about with Gore. Yeah, the gore has, there's no gore. There's a bloody shoe, that's it. But conceptually, they did convey through Lewis, like, this is tragic, this is intense, this is painful. Uh, so there's a lot of, you know, heady concepts, even though they're not delivered. And that's one of the things that's the shortcoming of the movie is the, the, the actually things that they show, the special effects that they do, aside from the special effects involving animals, are pretty garbage. But, right, yeah, it's, it's lacking. Yeah. yeah, but for guys like us, that actually adds a whole new wrinkle, uh, you know, because it has that kind of camp schlock to it. Like, this movie has a lot of, like, similar vibes as Psycho 3 to me, and, like, some of the camera angles and some of the color work, and it's, you know, the shitty effects kind of make it seem more B-movie, uh, and not necessarily adding a tone of humor, but it definitely makes it a comfortable space as opposed to being overly dramatic. Because there are some fucking movies like, what is it, Lovely Bones or whatever, where it's like, little girls getting raped and murdered. And I'm like, I don't I don't have any interest in that. So I'm right. already very wary of anything where kids get messed up or hurt. Um, and in this, I mean, that's the crux of the movie. And they do it with enough bookends of kind of either absurdity or hilarity that kind of make it easy to go through right and it's it's funny right so i feel like the most gore that you see in the film is from victor pascal yeah. the, the student that gets hit right it's like dude that kid got smacked hard by some sort of what problem i'm thinking was the trucker driving in the student parking lot because i feel like that's what you know gage should have had as far as if anything, like some sort of like traumatic head wound, right? Absolutely. Um, especially, you know, again, harping on the differences between the book and the movie, but this is something I think that even kind of shows. In the book, when they talk about Gage having resurrected, his head is it, as if it's been like inflated, and it's because it's been haphazardly kind of put back together. So that tells you he was essentially liquefied, right? And they've just kind of done jigsaw puzzle with his skull pieces and moved him and put him into place again like Humpty Dumpty. And then in the movie, he just looks like he had a, a weird, you know, you know foundation yeah, I was to say it almost looks like he was just like left outside in the cold for too long. Yeah, <laughs> which I mean, it's fine. I get it. You don't want to be overly grotesque, and obviously, right, especially has especially for a child, right? Yeah. You're not going to have like <laughs> a kid with like a missing eyeball or something. Well, and they were super considerate of the kid, uh, Miko, right. whatever his last name is. Uh, you know, if you look closely during the action sequences, you can see it's not his hand when it's stabbing people. They have close-ups of the kid, and they have close-ups of the hand, which are, it's clearly fake. And it, I think they were very mindful of not traumatizing a fucking child while doing this, which is, I think, very savvy. You know, it's a good thing to do. I don't think the child actors should be exploited. 
Um, now we live in an age where you could just do computer-generated effects. So it doesn't even matter. what the, the kid would never know. But in this, at this time, I think they were very sophisticated. Because, I mean, imagine that kid goes and looks in the mirror and sees his bloated head with, like, a seam down the middle where, you know, that's not, that's not healthy. Right, right. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And, um, yeah, so other than that, I mean, one of the things that I really kind of uh, was hoping uh, Judd, I don't know, I was just really pulling for Judd to kind of make it, right? Because, of course, it's Herman Munster. Yeah. <laughs> so you just you just kind of want to root for him. And, uh, yeah, that doesn't work out too well. <laughs> it doesn't. And he's, you know, he's a very interesting character. Uh, you know, we keep calling him Herman Munster because that's his most iconic role. But you know, Fred Gwynn was a good actor because think about his three most iconic roles that he did that at least I'm aware of. Herman Munster, The Judge in My Cunnies and Vinny, and this movie. Each one's different enough in their presentation. He's not a character actor in that sense. He does a really interesting job and I think does it quite well. And in this movie, he's got a complicated job of not only being like the harbinger of doom, but at the same point, he is your emotional kind of conduit to this creed family yeah. because he's like an outsider and yeah. yeah he's almost he's almost like the father figure that they kind of need right not so much like rachel's parents but Quite, yeah uh, somebody yeah somebody who who is you know just like a wholesome dude right Quite literally, in the book, I mean, that's. I think that shows how effective this movie is. In the book, Lewis Creed talks about like this is the father figure. Like he has a, a deep love for Judd Crandall, and I think they he did a really good job of conveying that. And here's the thing: you don't see Lewis, you know, having that love, but you see the relationship. And I think that's a lot of Fred Gwynn being a fucking great actor in this movie. Yeah, he definitely sells it. Absolutely. So. um you know, we've talked about the situation with the kid getting hit by the truck, blah, blah. We're moving on. Uh, in telling the story uh, you know, from Judd Crandall saying, oh, yeah, you don't want to be doing the resurrecting of the sun. Uh, he refers to the Tim, Timmy Baderman who, you know, like we said, died in Italy in World War II and came back. And he's just kind of this psychotic monster man. Um, did you think that scene was effective like um, I, I keep saying i'm asking if you think these things are effective which it probably sounds redundant but it's just like did you like it because i don't th- i think that was probably the weakest part for the movie i think well, just having him do an effective monologue would have been better yeah it was well it was just one of those things where i feel like it wasn't explained well enough for me to understand what was truly going on like i f- i didn't really understand until going back and doing a little more research that judd was part of that crew that little like you know flashback as far as seeing what happened uh with uh what was his name timmy baderman yeah you didn't timmy like the, the the crappy voiceover if you right would... that's 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 what i'm talking about it's it's like the whole voiceover over the whole montage oh and, no i'm not talking um, about that so when it goes to the flashback there's a scene where a man in overalls who's clearly younger has uh, Herman Munster do a voiceover and is like, well, you know, boy. And it's supposed to be showing, like, oh, this is him as a younger kid. And it's like, this is so hack-ass. Okay, it yeah, so bad. that's that must have been the part where I didn't get it. Yeah. Because I was like, who are these people and why are they attacking? Okay, I understand Timmy Baderman's um, not quite the same. and He's, like, you know, lashing out and this and that. But at the same time, I'm like, okay, were these random town folk who just, like, came and, and figured out that this was, like, some evil presence that needed to be burned? And I think it's kind of funny that, like, 
they like burned down the whole place instead of just killing Timmy, right? I thought that was really strange. It just like, oh, you know what? We're just gonna burn down the whole place and just you know wipe our hands clean. Everything's fine. Yeah, I'm putting a big asterisk next to this entire conversation for me to pitch uh, a difference to you in the remake. So let's kind of move this part along because okay. I think you're really going to like what I have to say about that. But the one thing that makes me say I think an effective monologue would have been way better was uh, when he says, we all lost our minds. I think that was the, the equivalent of like Anthony Perkins saying, we all go a little mad sometimes. It was such like an eerily relatable thing to say, but it was so like dissociative from the rest of his character that I, I realized like, I didn't need to see some crap, you know, actor spit fake blood out of his mouth and shake his head like a dog just having a really intense monologue would have been better but that's just me um i also have a note here tell me what you think gage creed equal pro wrestler name (laughs) i like it that's definitely uh definitely a possibility because i mean they have some uh some strange uh pro wrestling names and um coincidentally enough Gage Creed totally works. <laughs> uh, so, did you get the vibe that the Victor Pascal was derivative of American Werewolf in London? Uh, you know, I didn't. I didn't get that. But then again, I haven't seen that movie. <gasps> Shocker! Uh, wait, ever? <laughs> no, I haven't seen it. Is that one of the ones we're gonna watch next, or what? Are you fucking with me right now? <laughs> I'm, I'm totally serious. Okay, that movie yeah. came out in 1981. And it's one of my like top five favorite movies of any genre. Um, you know, one, believe believe it or not, movies do slip between the cracks uh, as far as I'm concerned. So, uh, you know, I haven't seen them all. But, well, hey, uh, I hadn't seen this either. So, I mean, you, yeah. I, I'm actually, I'm not upset with you right now. I'm excited because <laughs> I get to show this to you. So, uh, I like it. Spoiler alert, episode two, American Werewolf in London. There we go. Done deal. Oh, that's awesome. So then so, then we get so, to have the conversation that I just put a note about, whether it's say, derivative or not. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, we can probably touch back on that, or you can just kind of fill me in on uh, how you think it, uh, Victor Pascal is uh, one and the same with somebody with, uh, you know. Well, I, so it's, this movie's eight years after American Werewolf in London, and I don't think that it's... What I like is I don't feel that it's exploitative. I don't feel that it's overly derivative. I feel like it's a good enough job of being its own thing to where, even though the comparison is clear, it's not the same thing. And I oh, think okay. Pascal is much more effective in the you know this. The character who does the kind of same coming back to talk in American Werewolf, I'm trying to keep this vague, so there's probably a listener who's like, just fucking say the name! No, I'm not <laughs> going to. Uh, but the point being... I think that that character is almost like a Cheshire cat who's like, hey, buddy, here's this thing. Oh, okay. Whereas Pascal, at least in the you know the movie, does more to effectuate this, which doesn't happen in the book. So I think that they actually did a really good job in making this movie of being like, I think that this could be linked, and I feel like they took it an extra step to avoid that link. So that was one of the more effective parts of the movie, I thought. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Mm-hmm. 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 So, da 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 da. Oh, oh yeah, good. No, go on. So, uh, when Rachel ends up later, so Ellie 
God, I'm just jumping all over the place, aren't I? Because I'm just I'm looking at my bullet pointed notes, and I'm just happy when I can figure out what the fuck I wrote. And I'm like, oh, let me just say this thought. Uh, which... No, it's totally fine. I mean, I feel like you know we'll uh, we'll get the the you know we'll get things going as far as you know different format and whatnot, and we'll figure it out as we go. Yeah, you know, it's freewheeling. If you wanted to have a linear robot podcast, you just listen to robot podcast. <laughs> I was like, oh shit, is he going to throw out a name? I was no, going to say no, robot like... slashers, but then I was like, no, I might want to save that name in case we ever do something on a sci-fi episode. That's funny. Um, but, uh, yeah, go on. Go on yeah, with the point. So, you know, there's the planes, trains, and automobiles from hell when Rachel's trying to get back to figure out what the fuck Lewis is up to because Ellie's having right. that premonition. Uh, so as she's going, there's all this stuff. At one point, she ends up hitchhiking in a Rinco truck. Um, what do you think of that? Oh, I thought it was great, right? Because yeah. <laughs> it's Again. like let's it's like it, go, it comes full circle, right? Yeah. And it's funny because like I, I felt like um, he definitely wouldn't have just given her a free ride. It would have been like a what, what's the term? Uh, ass, cash, or grass? Oh yeah, <laughs> it, it's the rule of the road. <laughs> I think, what was that from, uh, Jay and Santa Bob? Hell yeah. George Carlin sucking some mad dick. And then Carrie Fisher getting her bush bitten off. Um, but I love it. That's not in the book at all. And I loved it. I thought that was brilliant. Because as I was watching it in the movie, I was like, oh, that's great. Like, that's super cool. And then I was really interested in, like, I, I put a little bookmark in my head. I dog-eared that page of my gray matter. And I was like, all right, when we get to the, the book, let's listen closely for that. And it didn't happen. And I was like, Damn. That's a yeah. nice little deviation. I like that. And it's funny because, like, you, it would have been kind of nice if you would have heard, like, or or seen, like, a first-person view from Rachel's point of view inside the truck to kind of see, like, how fast they're flying down the road. Oh, that would have been great, dude. Yeah, especially, you know, if they had some sort of dialogue, right? Where she's just like, wow, I really wish there would have been, like, some sort of posted speed limit or something, but, well. And that that's actually a really interesting point because she needs him to be moving fast because she has that sense of urgency. So she could almost... Dude, that's a good... Look at you. You should be in the film, dog. <laughs> I don't know, man. Every once in a while I get a little tidbit here and there, but it's uh, few and far in between. Don't be overly humble. you you got to sell us, man. You Slashers, we're the best. <laughs> we're, oh, wait. Oh, how yeah, did yeah. I introduce us? I was like, guys who don't have any competency? Yeah. <laughs> Hello, pot. My name is Kettle. That's it, man. So, uh, but yeah, um, I thought, you know, it was kind of interesting, right, where she is, like, on her way back to, uh, you know, the house based off of uh, Ellie's kind of, like, information she's kind of given her. Um, and everything's happening to her, like, as far as, like, getting, like, driven off the road. Is that, like, some sort of, like, like spiritual presence or, like, an evil presence trying to stop her? Or is that just kind of, like, bad luck? So that's it, 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 both in the book and the movie. It's supposed to be like a spiritual presence from the burial ground. Um, in the book, it's manifested that you know one of the cables falls off of the battery in the car, and then a trooper oh, okay. helps her. So I mean, I guess they kind of just did it in a more like visually engaging way, which I thought was cool. Um, you know, her having a rental car in the book is kind of signals to Lewis that something is wrong across the street, which is why he goes over. But I didn't think that it was bad. Um, you know, it's one of those things where 
I, I really don't mind when there's variations in books and movies when it's analogous, where you, substantively you're talking about the same thing, it's just done a little differently. Yeah, because, and it's, it's, it's not going to change much. Yeah, they're different platforms. Whereas if you make a complete deviation, I can understand being upset by that. But, I mean, you have to acknowledge that this is a visual medium where you don't have the benefit of a narrator explaining everybody's thought and you know, motivation. So having these visual cues becomes way more important. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And then another thing that um, I thought was really kind of interesting, and they never really kind of delved into it when we were talking about it um, just the other day, was um, the strange face coming out of the rocks um, the second time when Lewis is bringing Gage's body to the burial grounds. Yeah, it's weird. It's not. The book references the Wendigo's head floating. Um, and then the Wendigo is a bigger character later on in terms of like this horrifying visual which ties it back to the Native American mythology. But the head thing, I don't know. It's weird. Yeah, they don't even explain it at all. Like there's no reference to a Wendigo or anything, I don't think, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if anything, maybe Judd would say something, right? Because he's been there for so long. But I don't think there was anything there. It would have if, if they actually used the word Wendigo, it would have pinged in my brain because literally my next tattoo that I have an appointment for in three weeks is a Wendigo. Oh, so I definitely would. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Where are you gonna get that at? Uh, on my arm, between my kappa and my memorial for my uncle. I like it. And so if you don't know what a kappa is, y'all need to Google that because it's the best cryptid ever. Japanese folklore. (laughs) People shit on them and that's how you win. (laughs) Is that literally how you win? You shit on them? Yeah, dude. They're like super about propriety. And so if you can trick them into like bowing and this bowl of water pours out of their head, they'll be your slave if you can put water back in it. And so like being obsessed with bowing and good manners if you like flop your nutsack in front of them and shit all over <laughs> they'll be like and they'll leave you alone <laughs> or if you feed them cucumbers it's really weird and i love it that's, so naturally really cool. i commemorated it on my skin because that's what you do <laughs> good old japanese folklore i mean Fuck i have yeah. my entire back is covered in japanese folklore so i'm right there with you hell yeah um man we could. I could. I'm trying to pull the reins back because I could get way off topic with Wendigos and cryptids. But we're moving on. Okay. Um, you know, I don't think it was necessary, and I think that a it's costly, so I can totally see why they cut it. But then b why would you don't. spend any cost to make a fake head? And that? I was yeah, I was gonna say then just don't put it in yeah. at all. You know? Which is what so. she said, by the way. <laughs> Zinger. Harsh. Harsh, harsh, man. Hopefully that's the first and last time I do it. That's what she said on this show. Got it out of the way in episode one. Let's yeah, move know. on. I, I, might, I might set myself up quite a bit on those, but uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, let's just move on to Gage coming after Judd Crandall. Well, first, going to the house, getting the scalpel, then going and taking out Judd Crandall. Why do you think, I mean, this is complete speculation. There's no answer in the book either, so this is not pop quiz time. Why do you think that Gage would go after Judd before anyone else? Um, the only thing that comes to mind is he Judd is the only one that can really stop him, I believe, because he's an outsider, right? It's not somebody that's family that I feel like he can play to their weakness. Oh, wow. It's somebody that's, you know what I mean? It's something that's going to be like a complete outsider to, um, you know, the demonic presence. He's going to see it. He's going to see Gage for who he is. He's not going to see Gage as this little loving child that we brought to life. Fuck right? yeah. That actually makes a lot more sense. 
Um, yeah, the only thing that doesn't make sense is he goes to Lewis's little medical bag, gets a scalpel, and then, like, literally walks across the street. Like, why doesn't he get hit by the same truck that hit him the first time? <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, if, I, if I'm zombie gauge, I'm not getting near that street. But uh, <laughs> I think that's actually a really good point. I was thinking that it was, you know, the metaphor of like, because they kind of tie the idea of loss and consequence to the act of bringing people back from the burial ground. So it was almost like, well, you brought in a new generation. So this is the burial ground getting what's theirs. Like, there's no such thing as a free lunch. You die mm-hmm. now because you've done this and you've, you know, cheated death both with your dog, dog spot, with church, and then by influencing Lewis, you know, inadvertently to bring back Gage. But I, I like yours better. I mean, just like the field of chess or whatever, you know, if I see that there's a threat, I'm going to take it out with my dad's scalpel while I'm wearing my burial suit. <laughs> that weird little <laughs> that weird little outfit he has on. Oh, yeah, that he gets from the painting. So, yeah, it's this, really so strange. Here's the fun thing. If you you have to pay attention very closely, but the weird painting in Rachel's house, dude, is that painting to... is so strange. It, it's not Rachel's house, right? Or is it her parents? So Rachel's it's the house that she grew up. So, okay, and that's supposed to be Zelda, and so when Gage is wearing that outfit, you know, Rachel's supposed to mistake her for Zelda. I think it's a super effective way of being super cheap. Because yeah. if you think about the, the way that they pulled off terrible effects, the idea of superimposing that dude's face onto Gage's body would not have worked. So just do the outfit, and it was fine. I thought that was actually super effective after reading the book and stuff. Um, because if you know, it, sometimes you th- see those things that are too ambitious that you know would have turned out like shit, and you're like, okay, this is a good idea. And I think that right. was one of the more solid ones. Yeah, so so Gage basically right lures Judd up into his room, and then he pulls the old uh, you know hiding under the bed technique, and um, slits the old Achilles. And uh, I feel like that's pretty damn smart. You know, it's like if you're a little kid and you're gonna take out a full grown adult, how are you gonna do it? You can't come at him like like straight at him, right? Because I mean they could just like soccer kick you out the window. Yeah. So, uh, and this is not your average eighty-plus-year-old man. This is a guy who's spring sprightly and multiple times like shows some kind of like strange athletic prowess, both in like climbing up to the burial ground and other stuff. So, I think that like legitimately, that's a, a big threat. How do you, if you're David fighting Goliath, you have to equalize. So that's one of the fucking creepiest things too. When he just slices it and he falls down, it was really effective because I, oh, absolutely, I curled absolutely. my toes and was like, fuck that, no. Mm-mm. Yeah, I feel like any time, anything to do with the Achilles is just like cringeworthy, right? Because I mean, I think, um, what was that, Hostel? Was Hostel mm-hmm. one of the ones where yep. they did, uh, they cut the Achilles too? Yeah, mm-hmm. and I remember I was just like, ooh, you know, you just get like, you just cringe. Yeah, we watched Hall, uh, Home Alone uh, for Christmas and uh, or for non-denominational winter holiday, and it was after watching Pet Cemetery. And so when Marv steps on the nail, I was like, you know what? Thank God he didn't get his Achilles cut. Like this guy got off light because that would have fucking sucked. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then um, I mean, I thought that was really cool how he. Uh, it's like he could have just gone straight for the throat, mm. but instead they slid across the mouth, right? And that's one of those things that's like 
really cool because usually it's like you take out the you know you take out the Achilles, you get them on the ground, and then it's just like the immediate kill. But it was almost like they were enjoying it. Yeah, and it also I thought it was cool because it kind of gave a default way for Judd's face to be like commemorating this horror forever. Like yeah, his mouth was totally always going to be a gape, and he was going to look like that. Um, you know, I think that that's one of the interesting parts too. He kills him with three cuts, whereas in the book he like stabs him like a dozen times. I think this is way more evocative of fear and just like holy shit. Uh, yeah, versus I the mean, book where it's kind of sloppy. And then one of the things too is like you can imagine, um, especially in you know 1989 when it came out, um, they kind of went a little far with how Gage kind of took out Judd, right? With like literally going up to his throat and biting it out yeah that was very gnarly that was one of the things that was weird we were like zombie not zombie um because it was yeah the fact that's the only time that any of the characters really engage in cannibalism was kind of interesting um and then when he gets rachel that's one of the things that's really interesting because in the book it does it's not narratively described how she gets it uh, so the way that he like lured her and then jumps out of the attic like some weird gremlin creature, uh, that was, I mean, of all the ways to do it, that was interesting at least, uh, except for the fact that it was done with probably the worst mannequin I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, well, they had to, they had to do something. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I thought that it was, it was definitely, I feel like after Judd got it, it was kind of anticlimactic on how she died. Exactly. Especially with, you could have kind of explored the whole, you know, I don't want to say edible complex, but, you know, the idea of the betrayal of the son killing the mother. But I think that just takes time. And at that point, you're already so close to the end and they don't want to incur any unnecessary expense. They just kind of wrapped it up, uh, which was fine. But I, I do agree with you. It's just kind of it feels a little bit rushed. So, you know. Lewis ends up injecting Gage the same kind of way as he does with the cat, which is absolutely horrifying. And for some reason, it's less horrifying to engage in infanticide uh, because the kid just walks away and cutely says, not fair, uh, (laughs) versus the cat. And I guess maybe I'm just too vegan at this point. Like, I've become that (laughs) fucking person, um, which I guess I am that guy because in our first episode, I'm like, oh, I'm vegan. Just you know, I need you all to know this about me (laughs) as if it matters at all. Uh, because hopefully you never hear me eating on this podcast because that's fucking annoying when other people do it. Yeah, you, you care. You basically care about the uh, the cat getting killed more so than the little baby child. Hey, man, <laughs> don't tell me you watched the new Planet of the Apes movies and didn't root for the apes over the people. Oh, it's it's definite. It's definite. You, you have to root for the apes. I mean, it's one of those things, especially I feel like Michelle has kind of slowly brought me over onto the animal side of everything. So I'm right there with you, bud. Yeah, so Gage dies, then, the, you know, Lewis ends up finding Rachel's body, and he's like, well, maybe we just waited too long and something evil crept into Gage. So then he takes her up to the burial ground, and then the movie ends. Brian, do you want to take it away, or shall I? Yeah, I mean, basically the movie ends with her coming in and looking like the most grotesque, I feel like, out of anybody in the entire movie. The yeah. makeup that they did for her was, like, phenomenal. Like, I was like, wow, I'm glad I'm not eating anything because... I probably would have lost my lunch. Um, Seriously. Yeah, and so, the goopy eye, right? Uh, the goopy eye is the star of the film. The weepy eye was definitely where it was at. And it's funny, too, right? Because you can imagine 
at least, I don't know, maybe it's just my morbid, morbid thought process. I'm thinking to myself, like, he's, like, first, like, okay, well, let me try and save Gage because he's my baby child. And then he's like, okay, well, maybe I could save Rachel because she hasn't been dead for too long because I have weird necrophiliactic uh, urges. I don't know if necrophiliactic is even a word, but I feel like it's one of those necrophilia kind of things. At least that's in my mind. I'm like, yeah, he's like, oh, sure, her body's not even cold yet. Let's <laughs> let's see where this goes from here. <laughs> yeah, well, well, that's another deviation from the book to the movie I really enjoyed that the movie did was in the book, it ends with her gravelly voice saying from behind him, hello, dear, and then it ends. Versus the movie, you know, they kiss and the eye is oozing and she pulls out the classic kitchen knife and you have these visions of campy horror and right. you know, Halloween and Psycho. And I was like, that's great. And it just ends there. I don't need to see him die. Like, my imagination did all the legwork there. Yeah. I just thought it was really fun. Yeah, and um, I mean, I hate to cite, uh, or at least uh, backpedal, I should say, but um, I feel like one of the things that I, I wanted to bring up as far as when uh, Gage was having his little battle with his dad was I felt like... Uh, Lewis like had a lot of like internal damage as far as like kind of the blood and gore like that they showed like from the baby stabbing him right because he got stabbed quite a few times in the chest or from what it looked like they showed lots of blood and then all of a sudden he's like well I guess I'm all right yeah which I mean I I don't know it's one of those weird things where it's just like was it a conscious choice or was it ignorance I don't know because he is sitting there on the floor of the kitchen. He is still covered in blood, so he looks fatigued. Yeah. But you yeah. don't know if it's because he's just tired from carrying a grown-ass woman's dead body up a, a giant <laughs> mountain, or if he's just bleeding. That's um, true. But that is true. luckily it's the end of the movie, so... Yeah, I guess you know, it doesn't it's matter. It's implied he, he dies anyway, so it's kind of like, all right, we get to move on, which is pretty fun. Um, so overall, Brian... Uh, this is a definitely must-watch movie, right? Oh, absolutely. It's definitely uh, one of those ones that um, if you're into any kind of Stephen King movie at all, I feel like you have to, um, I mean, even not necessarily just movie, just any of his novels. Um, Pet Cemetery is definitely a classic, and it, yeah. uh, it lives up to its name. And it's definitely one of those things where I'm very thrilled to see that they're, ma- they're, uh, they're making a remake. And so, you know, in terms of the book, I don't think the book is must-read if you've seen the movie because it's very similar. Like, it's surprisingly similar in a lot of ways. Okay. The stuff that they cut is kind of fluff. Um, There are some things that I like from the book better, which we'll get into, but I think overall, both are great standalones. You could put them both together, and this is not something where you're going to feel ripped off. Um, I do want to briefly touch on uh, Pet Cemetery 2, which I had a lot of fun watching. Uh, I'm not going to get into it too much. But just some of the things that I enjoyed from it. That movie, if you've ever heard of a movie called Angus, it's the quintessential 90s movie to me. Like, the soundtrack is great. It's about this kid who's bullied and picked on at school. Uh, Really great movie. If you mix that movie with Pet Cemetery 1, you get Pet Cemetery 2. Edward Furlong plays this kid. Uh, whose mom dies and they move back to her hometown and he's bullied and he has this friend who's a fucking loser and his dog dies and it, it's just it, it kind of goes off the rails um, you know broad strokes the kid's mom is this 
you know, well-known actress. So the kid already kind of gets a target on his back when he moves to this town because she's the biggest thing to come out of this town. So the bully obviously wants to fuck with him. Uh, the kid who, the fat kid who becomes his friend, uh, his stepdad is the cop who's like really cocksure and full of himself. So when the kid's dog dies, the fat kid, it's because the sheriff dad shoots him for fucking with his bunny rabbits, which he like raises. They bring the dog back. The dog kills the dude, the cop. And then they bring the cop back so they don't get busted. So it's actually kind of like, it's almost campy in that regard. It's kind of funny. Um, the movie kind of goes off the rails a little bit in the end when the kid decides to bring his mom back because suddenly he's Damien from The Omen and he's wearing like, this black suit and he's being like, ooh, we'll see her soon, father. <laughs> um, but it, it's, it's ridiculous fun. And I think that anybody... Uh, could do themselves a service by watching it. If, at the very least, to see a great example of a time capsule movie from that era, and be like, oh, shit. Um, and I think watching that more than watching Pet Cemetery, you realize that the director of these films used to direct music videos because it very like ties in with the music and it very specific beats throughout the movie. So highly recommend uh, if you, you know, didn't get enough Pet Cemetery in this one. I think it's very true to both the movie and the book in terms of the way the kind of zomboid creatures come back. And my favorite part, which the main reason I was obsessed about talking about it, Edward Furlong's character goes to the Pet Cemetery on Halloween. What costume do you think he's wearing, Brian? Um, he is dressed up as uh, a farmer like Judd. Not too far off. He's dressed as Jason Voorhees. Which oh. <laughs> it, like, that would be such a better backstory than what you get from, like, Jason Goes to Hell, where he's, like, this deadite thing. I think that the idea that Pamela Voorhees took her, her baby boy up to Maine and buried him in a pet cemetery or, you know, the Indian burial ground, and he came back like this, that's the story I want. I, that's the most ambitious crossover in movie history to hell with Infinity War. <laughs> Yeah, that is kind of a crazy crossover, and uh, de- definitely makes sense, so I'm all for it. <laughs> Hell yeah. So where I want to go from here, we talked about it briefly, is I want to compare some of the book notes and tell you, or get your opinion, if you think that would make the remake better or worse. So the biggest one is Judd Crandall's wife, Norma. In the movie, she's really kind of consolidated with two characters. Uh, there's Missy Dandridge is the wash woman in the movie who has stomach cancer and kills herself. She's kind of a blend of a character with the same name who's a babysitter in the book and Judd's wife, Norma, uh, because really the vessel is that she's the first way that Ellie uh, kind of comes to terms with human death. And so in the movie, Lewis ends up saving Norma's life when she has a heart attack. And in doing so, Judd owes him a debt that's, in his mind. That's in the book, right? Not the movie? Cor- oh, yeah. sorry. I misspoke. Yeah. Exactly. So Judd owes him a debt. So that seems to really push him to bring Church back. And so I really liked that element in the book. Do you think that that is a better motivation than just neighborly friendship and affection? Yeah. Uh, if Yeah, I, I, I think it's one of those things that um, it, it pushes for, um, uh, yeah, I'm going to repay you some way for, for saving my wife. And it definitely um, kind of propels the relationship between Lewis and Judd, right? Because, I mean you know from the first movie it it just seems like he's just like the i don't know he's like the lovable neighbor but there's no real backstory onto why he's the lovable neighbor he's just that guy 
Whereas, like, if there's um, his wife is involved, it definitely has a little bit of an aspect of, um, you know, like, relatability. As far as, um, like, Ellie's concerned, like, if if she has some sort of relationship with Judd's wife, then she's going to take it a little harder than just being some random house nanny, right? Exactly. So I think that's huge. Um, And because also... In, when Norma does end up dying, the Ellie goes to her funeral with Lewis, and she says, "This is after Church died. Uh, you know, I'd be okay if Church died now." Which is interesting because it shows that this that it had the same effect that Spot had with Judd. You have reached the point where you've dis- detached yourself enough from the animal where if it actually did die, you move on. And it's also interesting because it shows that Lewis didn't clean up his mess. Because at that point, you know, all, he really should have killed the cat. If she says she's okay with it and it's already dead, she, she should just make it dead. But he doesn't do it. Right. Um, which shows that he has issues too. And he's kind of emotionally infantile in that way. Right. Yeah, and it's, it's one of those things where it's like he almost, um, he, he has a fault and assumption, right? He's just like, well, I'm going to assume that Ellie's never going to be able to get over this, Right. And it's like, yeah. well, it's one of those things that I feel like people eventually do get over it. But I don't know. He just has like this like fatherly duty to like protect her at all times, I guess. Yeah. And it, it, in her talking about church not wanting to die, they did a good job of it in the movie because she's like, it's my cat. It's not God's cat. You know, God can get its own cat. Um, and in the book, you know, they describe it. I think it's a, a cap full of wind stirred up to a hurricane proportion by a trick of the mind where she just makes a mountain out of a molehill, essentially. I think that was really well done. Uh, and, you know, it moves the story along because she's she's the audience in a weird way. Um, even though she kind of has these premonitions and stuff, she's the conduit to show how emotionally affected these people are. And also she sets the, like, the barometer. Like, where she's at shows kind of where the narrative is. So, I don't know. I, I hope that the actress is a little bit less shrill in the new one because god the twins that played ellie in the original are a little bit uh grating on the old soul to listen to <laughs> yeah i'm i'm definitely agreeing with uh with that one but uh yeah any uh any other ones that you want to bring up oh a bunch let's a bunch. do it uh should Lewis be a bigger piece of shit? Because in the book, he's also an adulterer. Yay! You find out sixty years ago he went to a whore. Oh, um, nice. Um, yeah, he, he. The way that it comes up is he says that thinking about the situation with Victor Pascal uh, is he starts to think of it as if it happened to someone else, kind of like when he went to a whore six years ago. And you're like, oh, wow, neat. Okay. Um, well, I don't know how they can really make him any more of a douche. I guess just have him, you know maybe have that fantasy right in the very beginning of the movie um of him just kind of like dropping him off like at a random bus station and just like going off and doing his own thing i feel like that would be kind of a really cool visualization as far as like who he really is right um i don't know if it's if it's it's like he's like kind of like having like a a battle within his within himself as far as being like that good dad and then just being like somebody who he wishes he was so, I don't know. I think they can definitely do something there as far as um, highlight that a little more as far as kind of making you not really care so much about the dude. 
and, and let's face it, with the media that we've had as of late, you know, you have characters like Dexter or characters like Walter White. You know, the idea of having a villainous main character isn't totally alien. So the idea that you would have Lewis be a piece of shit through the whole movie, that's actually not a, a far-fetched idea. I think it might actually help make the other characters and other circumstances sound, you know, yeah. seem more relatable. And then at the end, his frantic desperation becomes more of a guy trying to fix his mistakes than just a guy trying to fix what's happening in the scene. Right, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where it definitely I feel like they can play it into um, maybe um, having Rachel be a little bit more... Uh, concerning with her her children and not being so distant with everything i feel like in the if the new movie were to come out i mean it is coming out but i mean the way they portray it is maybe she's like the polar <clears throat> sorry the polar opposite of lewis as far as um being the loving parent and he would just be like you know the dick yeah exactly uh, moving forward in the so this also ties in with Lewis being a big piece of shit. In the book, he hits Goldman, Rachel's dad, first. Do you think that he should do that in the remake? Uh, you know, I don't. I don't know. It's it's strange, right? Because there's not really a lot of backstory from the first movie, and um, so yeah, I mean, <clears throat> if they can kind of have a little bit of backstory as far as. Um, why they have such tension between each other i feel like it's it's definitely plausible for um him to hit lewis first um but yeah yeah. i'm sorry yeah so for the um goldman is it goldman yeah to uh to hit lewis first because um i mean there's there's going to be this backstory of you understanding why um goldman doesn't like him why he's a piece of shit maybe he knows that his uh son-in-law went to visit whore uh or i don't know i mean there's you know there there could definitely be some sort of uh backstory included in the in the new movie that would yeah. uh would make it plausible for him to uh you know attack him even though i i wouldn't condone anybody attacking a father when they're grieving over their child at the you know at the funeral but you know yeah, that's one of the reasons i mean they pretty much anchor the issues with their relationship to lewis is upset that you know, Rachel's dad tried to buy him off and say, hey, I'll give you money if you leave my daughter alone. Oh, okay. Um, and so when Lewis hits him at the funeral parlor, it's in re- retaliation. And it's weird because Lewis very clearly wants to make amends. And then this happens. He punches him. And then Goldman's like, oh, fuck you, little kid. Punches him in the throat and then kicks him in the ass while he's down. Oh, shit. Um, yeah, dude. He, like, straight up mercs this fool. And you're like, all right, that's interesting. Um, I think that if they go like full bore, Lewis is a piece of shit. That totally works. But if you're trying to make him sympathetic, which I mean, let's face it, you don't have a, a tremendous amount of time to do a lot of emotional play with the audience, and you just want to make him sympathetic, then have him get hit first. It didn't really bother me one way or another. Like it's a big change, but it doesn't really have the kind of consequences you would expect for a funeral fist fight. Right, right. I feel like it's one of those things where just a fight in general at a funeral is big. Who threw first is probably not something that people are going to care about. Exactly. Um, moving on, Timmy Baderman, the zomboid from the earlier uh, part with a kid who dies in World War II and he comes back. His dad brings him back. Uh, in the book, it's interesting because he's not just a slathering idiot who's like a wild man but actually super evil. Uh, so when the guys go over to confront uh, Baderman's dad, 
the reason they do it is because citizens have reported to the military, hey, we've seen Timmy around. And so they, this community knows about the Indian burial ground. And so they go, oh, fuck. Like the military is going to come because they're going to either think that he's AWOL or something crazy happened and they're going to start investigating and we can't have that, can we? So they go over and they confront them. And what I thought was the most chilling part of the whole book isn't in the movie. Uh, so let me ask you if you think this is going to work. Baderman, Timmy turns around. He looks at them and he has this evil knowledge that something more is going on behind his eyes. He's described as sly. And he has this like demonic knowledge, very similar to our pilot episode with like Event Horizon. Like he saw some shit on the other side and he points at the one dude and he says, you know, it's something about, uh, you know, your your wife, she's a whore and she screams when she gets fucked by this other guy. Holy shit. And then goes to the next dude and he's like, you know, you're a, you're a goddamn cripple and the only reason your grandkids do even spend time with you is because they want their inheritance, but they don't know that you blew their inheritance. And then he refers to Judd as a whore master. And then you find out that Judd had been going to prostitutes well into his 70s because he there were things he couldn't ask Norma to do. Holy and shit. so the guy, who's this like, the this white knight in so many ways in the book, becomes like a piece of shit, and it, it's so gross to think of. You know, you have this like image of Fred Gwynn being this like great fatherly maternal character or paternal character rather, and then you find out he's just as bad as Lewis in that way. And you're like, oh, it's just gross overlap. Um, do you think that a scene like that would be better than a guy going bleh, 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 and then having his house set on fire? <laughs> it's, I feel like it definitely would work. Um, it's one of those things where, um, again, touching back on the original film, uh, I feel like the whole scene with uh, Judd and uh, you know the local boys coming and uh, seeing uh, Timmy or is it Timmy? God, I can't remember his name. Anyways, he's, you know, blubbering around and, uh, you know, his dad's, like, trying to control him. They're like, well, we better just burn this joint down, burn this joint down to the ground. Um, yeah, it definitely would give a little bit of uh, input on uh, who exactly comes back after they're buried, right? Because, I mean, he goes on and says, like, you know, nobody's the same when they come back, but, I mean, for you just to kind of briefly see a, a dude that looks like a zombie doesn't really explain much. So if it, you know, if they had some way of tying in, like, uh, some dialogue as far as somebody that, that did come back from the, the Indian burial ground, um, you know, going off on this crazy rant and, like, telling everybody all the their, like, deep, dark secrets, I think that that's really intriguing. Yeah, and I think it helps, too, because it, when you have Gage talking somewhat eloquently, um, he's a baby. So he's not supposed, like, he never talks that well in the rest of the movie. So the fact that he just starts talking well and that Rachel t- speaks clearly at the end, it's odd, given that the only other comparison that you have was a slathering idiot who's like, Bleh! So to have someone articulate, I think, helps. And it also ties in with like, characters like Victor Pascal, who's like, oh, so there's more going on here it's not just mindlessness right um, which is interesting because that's distinctly separates the people from the animals because the animals when they come back are mindless um, and that's one of the things they described as like not being very graceful blah 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 so this brings you to the other part so now that you've already agreed to two i assume you're going to agree with this in the book judd has a wife boom in the book you find out that he went to horse boom in the book 
when Gage is talking to Judd, Norma's voice comes out of his mouth. She talks about how she got butt-fucked by all of his friends, and he loved it, and they used to laugh about it behind his back. Uh, and it's implied that one of the reasons is that Judd even went to whores was because there were things he couldn't ask his wife to do, implying sodomy. And then it's that she was getting butt-fucked by guys. Now, here's the, the fucked-up part, is that as far as we know, there's no reason that these zomboid creatures are lying you know, in fact, he, the other one, Timmy, had a remarkable sense of the truth. So it would suggest that when Gage says this, it's true, which, again, adds a whole new level of, like, disgust and terror. Wow. Do you think that that would make you skin crawl? That's one of those things where I feel like it might be a little bit too much. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, I mean, <laughs> and this this is coming from somebody who really kind of wishes there was a little bit more gore when involved in Gage getting ran over by a truck. But um, when it comes to uh, a little, you know, baby child uh, telling uh, uh, Judd's wife's deep, dark secrets to his face before he kills him, I feel like it's a a little much. A little little too psychologically traumatizing? Yeah, definitely. So those are like the big changes. I mean, obviously we talked about the Wendigo, which is just the visual element. I mean, it really doesn't add much to the story. It's more like a hallucination. And, uh, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if there's not even any kind of, uh, you know, indication of a Wendigo at all in the new film. Yeah. I, I, I don't think it's necessary at all. So I, I kind of move past it. Uh, so those are like the big hitting points. I think that if you add those, they make a whole different movie from the trailer. It doesn't look like John Lithgow has a wife, but who knows? Uh, the last point I wanted to ask, um, do you think this is the craziest theory of all? In the book, it makes more sense than the movie, so bear with me. Uh, the cat church gets fixed. The idea being he won't cross the road if he gets fixed because it affects their exploratory nature, right? Right. So he's already fixed by the time he gets hit by this truck. My theory is this, that Judd, knowing his wife Norma is in poor health and knowing that there is a physician across the street, this purposefully orchestrates Church's death so he can use uh, Lewis to try and work out all the kinks in the event that Norma predeceases him and he can bring her back to life with the help of a doctor. Do you think that's crazy? I don't know, man. I feel like that's a pretty far stretch. But it's definitely possible. I mean, I didn't even think about that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where I I feel like Judd kind of already knew that fi- getting church fixed wasn't going to save him from getting hit. It was just kind of one of those like, uh, oh yeah, get him fixed. That'll probably stop it. But yeah, it's, it's definitely plausible that um, he had an idea that Judd or uh, church is going to get hit and use that as a segue to, uh, oh, by the way, maybe come take a look at my wife. <laughs> Yeah, it's it, you know it's interesting because in in the book it's always it's established from even before you meet Norma as a character she's in poor health she has arthritis and everything so much so that Lewis is cynical about even going over to their house because he's like fuck they're gonna ask me for free advice and they're gonna want me to examine her but they don't and it's like a long I, you know it kind of gives you the idea of like the long con because he does end up evaluating her later and he saves her life later uh, so these are just things. I like, you know, I like unanswered questions because they can kind of give you that, you know, room to play. But especially in the book, you find out Judd's not the nicest dude. He he fucks whores. Uh, in the book, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's a lot more subtle about how they kill Timmy. It sounds almost a little bit more evil because 
the scene that they find is that you know it's he even says it's you know quote made to look like hmm. Timmy's dad shot him and then burned the house down but the fact that it's made to look implies that he did the murdering but it sounds worse because it's not like in the movie when they're like oh well, we're protecting everybody and this it's like we're hiding a dirty secret right uh, so i think that the book kind of makes him a little bit more skeevy than he comes across so that's why my mind wandered but yeah that's funny because it's like the exact opposite of what i got from watching the movie you know from not reading the book as i'm like look at this all classic down home uh country you know judd being the the lovable, you know, guy next door. But in, in reality, he's really this, like, kind of like this dark individual that has, like, ulterior motives. Exactly. But, I mean, that's the great thing about having watched the movie first is this was all added bonus content. It's kind of like getting the deleted scenes on a uh, DVD versus if I had read the book first and then I watched the movie, I'd be like, what the fuck happened to Norma? Like, <laughs> what the fuck is this? Yeah, you feel like you were cheated a little bit. Exactly. Uh, so, Brian, any closing thoughts as we wind down this, uh, what is it, what do we call the initial episode, the, 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 the maiden voyage. God damn, that's what I wanted to say. There we the go. maiden voyage. Yeah, um, you know, other than, you know, Pet Cemetery is, uh, it's a great film. It's definitely one that, uh, I recommend everybody check out, um, even though it's spelled, um, incorrectly. But uh, that's besides the point. <laughs> yeah, in in the book, they do a good job of explaining it because he's like, it's you know, it's the fact that the children wrote it, and that's why it has the innocent, and they even they remark on it. But otherwise, you're like, did I fucking spell cemetery wrong? Have I been spelling <laughs> cemetery wrong my whole life? They wouldn't put out a movie under the wrong spelling, would they? And then you're like, oh, yeah, I get it. I'm in on the joke now. Um, yeah. So. One thing I feel like I have to explain the joke. Uh, the intro to this uh, episode plays the song Poison Heart by the Ramones, which is the titular song, or not titular, it's the title song, I guess, of Pet Cemetery 2, even though it's not in name, which is the joke. Of, of note in the book, it's Blitzkrieg Bop. And I think that it's hilarious that in both Pet Cemetery 1 and 2, there are a total of three Ramon songs, none of which are the fucking song from the fucking book. <laughs> <laughs> but as a guy who doesn't even like the Ramones, that's totally fine, but I think it's hilarious. So there you go. I'm spoiling my own joke. <laughs> uh, I'd like to say as we wind down, uh, I'd like to thank our friend Ben Carter, uh, who calls himself Tucked In for his song, uh, Botch Sepulcher, uh, which is the music that follows. Uh, thank you very much for allowing us to use that. He found us on Reddit and gave it to us free of charge. Uh, great mensch. Uh, give him a listen and a follow if you don't mind that's one of the things that's great about this show already people on reddit have been super supportive our friends have been super supportive so i'd like to say you know thank you to all of you thank you to my wife who is watching my baby right now while i talk about a movie that she didn't particularly care for yeah i gotta thank my wife too she's uh, out driving in the snow because uh, i'm doing podcast and she has to be driving in the snow so love you babe make it home safe Right on. So next week, it looks like we're doing American Werewolf in London. Uh, I will tell you this now. I will not. I cannot be made to do American Werewolf in Paris. I won't even. Mm-mm. I won't rewatch it. I'll, I'll give Brian my ranting rundown like I did on Pet Cemetery 2. But let me tell you, I'm going to say avoid that movie like it's the plague. Because it is 
the worst thing ever. Um, so, Brian, thank you very much for joining me on uh, this inaugural Slashers podcast. Uh, come up with something witty to say as we close out. No pressure. Go. Um, <laughs> Zappy dappy doo wow. Boop 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 doop. Ba da ba ba da ba. What is it? I don't want to be buried in a pet cemetery. <laughs> I don't want to live my life again. <laughs> I feel like it's a combination of like uh, the Ramones and um, Glenn Danzig. <laughs> yeah. Mother, don't bury me in a pet cemetery. <laughs> I like it.